This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Today, our podcast, um, we're going to discuss bicuspid aortic valve disease. And with us today, uh, we have a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Kyle Udaly, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And, and Kyle is, uh, is an up-and-coming you know, surgeon, but already uh, very successful, has treated a lot of my patients with aortic disease and sometimes uh, pretty late at night and on Friday night, you know, <laughs> helping my patients. So Kyle, thank you very much uh, for both taking care of our patients as well as agreeing to do this podcast with us, uh, with MyHeart.net today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dr. Bouchard. Thanks. Such an esteemed uh, interviewer here. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, a, little, a little anxious to be interviewed by you about this. <laughs> Well, listen, we know that bicuspid aortic valve disease is the most common congenital heart defect, and it represents the coexistent aspect of a genetic disorder of the aorta and the cardiac development. And a good way to remember uh, the facts about bicuspid aortic valve disease is to think of the number two. And obviously, we're talking about an aortic valve with two leaflets that is affecting up to 2% of the population with a male to female ratio of two to one, there may be a second person in your family that can be affected. A second non-valvular finding, mostly the aorta, can is actually present in one out of two patients. And very often, bicuspid aortic valve disease is, has a bimodal presentation. It can present either as a narrowing of the valve or aortic stenosis or leakage of the valve. There's two types of treatment. It can be a surgical or a non-surgical, such as the TAVR, and we'll talk about all this. And if you decide to have surgery, well, it can be two types of valve, a mechanical or a bioprosthetic valve. So there's a lot of twos, but there's a lot more to it than this, isn't it, Kyle? I mean, uh, I think that's an amazing summary. I mean, we might be, we might be done after that. Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit more? About sure. bicuspid aortic valve disease. So, I mean, I think I think you you really hit the nail on the head. Um, and it, you know, for everybody who does not know, the aortic valve—it's the last valve to leave the heart. Um, all of your blood flows to this valve, and it, leaving the left side of the heart. And uh, you know, ninety-eight percent of the population, as you mentioned, has a tri-leaflet or or um, uh, three cusps. And if you're um, Looking at this valve sort of on FOSS, it looks like a peace sign or a Mercedes-Benz sign where you have three leaflets kind of coming together in the middle. And if you look at it from the side, it almost looks as if like you have two hands kind of praying where everything comes together. And so, you know, this is the normal structure and function of the aortic valve. The aortic valve also happens to be intimately attached to the aortic root and also um, the ascending aorta. And so the aortic valve apparatus is really a kind of 3D structure that involves the aortic root and also the ascending aorta. And so that's why, as you mentioned, that sometimes it actually involves disease that doesn't just affect the valve, but also affects um, the aorta, which is obviously the largest blood vessel in your body. So <clears throat> people who have bicuspid valves have two leaflets instead of three. 
And actually, there's um, three flavors of bicuspid valves. So this is this is maybe a three instead of a two. One of the few times it's going to be this way in this talk. But <clears throat> really, um, the way we define the valve is based upon how the leaflets look or really the leaflet morphology. Um, <clears throat> so the vast majority of patients uh, fall under this basically fused leaflet type of morphology. And what that looks like is really just uh, imagine if you fused one of the commissures uh, between the leaflets. So uh, the trileaflet aortic valve has a left, right, and non-commissure leaflet. And so um, the most common uh, bicuspid valve, which actually represents close to about 80% of people, depends on what study you look at, uh, is a simple fusion of the left and right leaflet. And so really, instead of this sort of Mercedes-Benz sign or peace sign, you end up with kind of just a, a you know, two halves or two thirds of that, of those lines. And you just end up with a valve that opens, um, not completely, but um, still functions actually relatively well. In order to sort of really classify this, we, we have a, a more specific classification system that uh, surgery uses that's called the Seavers classification. And that comes in zero, one, and two. Um, and so the most common bicuspid valve that you see, the one that I was mentioning with the fusion of the left and right leaflets, that's a Seavers type one. And so again, vast majority of people have what we call a Seavers type one bicuspid valve, and you have a fused leaflet. Um, these people tend to, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know they have bicuspid valve. And as you noted, the, the, the sort of natural history is, is very different depending on a lot of different things. To sort of round out the rest of bicuspid valves and the, the more uncommon bicuspid valves, there's really the two other types, that's Seavers type zero and then Seavers type two. Seavers type two um, is basically fusion of two leaflets or two raffae, excuse me, and that's what we usually call a unicuspid valve. These people usually have sort of more aggressive um, aortic stenosis pathway. Um, this is very uncommon. Um, and then we also have um, Seavers type zero, which is really imagine like a 180, 180 degree, two, two equal leaflets, 180 degrees and 180 degrees. Um, the question, as you said, in terms of how prevalent 2% of the population, that's the standard epidemiology. Um, actually, some studies is a little bit less, some studies a little bit more, but 2% really is where it usually falls. For a lot of people, you know, this is something that is a congenital cardiac anomaly, meaning that you have this from birth. So a lot of people don't find out about it until later on in life. And a lot of people live a normal life and never know they have it. Um, but it is something that you're born with and that something, it's something that is kind of um, in your genetic coding, um, which, it, you know, this gets into another interesting aspect of how it's passed along or how uh, people have it. But it is, um, it is something to where it has to do with how the valves are developed in in utero or really in birth. Um, and it is something that's passed down within the family. So uh, the vast majority of bicuspid valve disease is autosomal dominant, meaning that um, your first order relatives uh, most likely will have that gene. But that still only accounts for about 70% of bicuspid valve disease. So, um, you know, it, it, it is genetics, but like many things in medicine, it's not all genetics. Um, we can get into that a little bit later when we talk about some of the other aspects uh, that come with bicuspid valve disease, but that's the sort of basics of how we define it, how we expect it in terms of um, where, you know, the prevalence in the population, 
and then how it's passed along, you know, amongst patients. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about this anatomy, Kyle. Um, you know, we talk about two leaflets, but you know, most of the time we imagine you know two equal leaflet kind of opening and closing, looking like a fish mouth almost. Right. Um, but it's not always like that. I mean, sometimes I, I, I guess most of the time you have one leaflet that is larger than the other. Uh, and depending on their, uh, you know, how much calcium they have, particularly like, you know, me, I do mostly adult cardiology. You know, you, you, when you have a valve that has a lot of calcium, um, it, it can be very difficult to say, is it truly a bicuspid valve or not? It can look like a tricuspid valve, but not really kind of work like one, you know, work more like two, depending whether you have this raffi or not. Uh, sometimes the way it's oriented, that valve, you can, you know, have a valve that can cover two openings of the coronary arteries, the two main openings, the, the right and left side, but mm -hmm. this is the other one where it's kind of splits right in between. Right. Uh, so there's so much variation. And I guess it does uh, matter of how it, how, you know, it, it influenced the clinical course. It, it probably matters a lot about also how you treat these patients, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, there's almost, there's a lot of variations. And so, you know, what does that mean? You can, you can kind of get stuck figuring out exactly which angles and what size and where the coronaries come off. But what's actually really clinically relevant um, really comes down to a few things. One is we know that um, the more raffes, the more aggressive the aortic stenosis pathology is, meaning that if you have this kind of single RAFA versus two RAFA, um, those are those end up having more aortic stenosis than the, say, Seaver zero or true non-RAFA uh, bicuspid valves. Um, and so that's important from a, from a perspective of what do you need to be monitoring a patient for. Um, the other is, uh, and, and this is what kind of gets into treatment, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later, particularly um, discussing surgical versus uh, TAVR, percutaneous treatment, is that for whatever reason, bicuspid valves um, really have a heavy calcium burden, a heavier calcium burden than, than most tricuspid um, aortic stenosis valves. Um, and that, that calcium burden um, is, is impressive. It's impressive when you see it in the operating room. It's impressive when you see it on a CT scan. It's impressive when you see it in an echo. And for all those reasons, um, it, it, it has raised concern, at least for percutaneous treatment of the valve. Um, and it, it is something that we pay attention to, especially, uh, with, uh, you know, preoperative imaging or preoperative sizing or, or even just diagnostic imaging. Um, and it's because those valves can, can be very calcified. I will say also that the, you know, the thicker raffade valves, as I said, are tend more towards aortic stenosis. Um, but that's not the whole story, being that, as you kind of mentioned, there's this bimodal presentation of bicuspid valve disease, meaning that there is a subset of bicuspid valves that actually present with leaky valves, where they're not calcified, and actually the valves themselves are a little more lax, and they actually have more aortic regurgitation. And as you mentioned, Again, it comes a little bit down to anatomy where they actually have a one leaflet that's a little bit uh, longer than the other, and it, it results in sort of a slipping of that leaflet on the other leaflet, and you end up with this eccentric regurgitation. Um, and so 
that is a, a pathology or really a, a, something we see in, in younger bicuspids, usually people in their 30s and 40s. And that's, that is that first half of the bimodal presentation, that aortic regurgitation with, with the longer leaflet and the more lax valve. Whereas if you get into the 50s and 60-year-olds who have bicuspid valve disease, they typically end up with aortic stenosis or stiffening of the valves. So when we think about a congenital disease, of course, we always think about, uh, and particularly much younger in life, uh, we think about some of the syndromes that we have that can be associated with bicuspid, um, rare syndrome that we, we really don't see that often, like you know Turner syndrome or, or uh, Williams. But, you know, sometimes we'll see a cohort, you know, which right. um, you know, very frequently we'll, we'll, we'll have to think about bicuspid valve in these patients uh, because up to 75% of, you know, a cohort patient will have also a bicuspid valve. And, and not that we see cohort <laughs> that frequently, you know, where you have the narrowing of right. the descending aorta, uh, which could lead sometimes to higher blood pressure. This is how we see them. No, and, and you hit the nail on the head with Turner syndrome, meaning that... Um, because of valves, as you said, are uh, highly uh, associated, uh, 75% of people with coarcs. And, and those are people that you actually want to be a little more aggressive about treatment of the valve, but also treatment of aortopathies in those patients as they have much higher risk of dissections or aortic complications because of the hypertension associated with coarc disease. Um, on top of that, there is, again, this sort of um, genetic uh, component to these people to where the aorta may not be exactly normal. And uh, it gets into this, um, what you sort of were hinting at is that there is a significant genetic component to bicuspid aortic valve disease, but it's not the typical genetics that people think of where it's, um, you know, a hundred percent one-to-one meaning, you know, brown eyes to brown eyes. And, and so the, the, there is a genetic component, but there, there, there's, there's this incomplete penetrance, right? That's, that's the, the, the thing to focus on. And, and for people who don't know what that is, incomplete penetrance basically means when you have a, a genetic trait that has a, a, a various phenotypic expression, meaning that it does not, what, what the gene says is not always identical to what the, what, the body, what the body shows or sees, meaning what the phenotype is. And so bicuspid is one of these valves or one of these genetic disorders where you have incomplete penetrance, meaning that um, there are, with some people, certain associations in, in terms of aneurysmal disease or other things like a coarctation, and with other people, they're not, um, which is kind of interesting. And there's, it is an area that is actively studied, but very interesting in terms of, um, you know, there's just a lot of unknown and a lot of genes in play, which make it more complicated. Well, to me, the, the association, you know, between the aortic valve and the aorta, the ascending aorta is very interesting. I mean, you have 50% of the patients that have this abnormality of the ascending aorta, and you kind of wonder, uh, you know, obviously we see a lot of patients with, you know, narrowing of the valve, that aortic stenosis that creates this turbulence and you have this jet, and we think this is really what contributes to this expansion of the ascending aorta, this post-stenotic dilatation. However, this is not what's going on with bicuspid aortic valve, right? I mean, is this like, is this like the Marfan? You're, you're having this kind of connective tissue disease and, and you have this kind of enlargement of the aorta, something? There, it is a, uh, no, I mean, this is a uh, hotly debated topic, meaning is it the chicken or the egg, right? And, and <laughs> this is, I think, what you're trying to get at in that. So, 
for those people who don't know, and we're sort of hinting at it here, but but um, aortopathy, which is a dilation of the aorta, uh, really goes hand in hand with bicuspid valve disease. Meaning, as you said, um, it's almost up to 50%. Uh, some say it's around 40% of people who have bicuspid valve disease will have some aneurysmal disease in their life. Um, if you look at it, a better way to think about it is it's it's about an you have an 86 fold increase in having aneurysmal disease if you have a bicuspid valve disease over the normal population. On top of that, you have an eight fold increase in having an aortic dissection uh, over the normal population if you have a bicuspid valve. The reason for that is is not necessarily um, the dissection is not necessarily the bicuspid valve itself, but but probably the aortic disease or the aortopathy associated with it, and so. Um, you know, the question then becomes, are bicuspid valve patients, do they inherently have an abnormal aorta, meaning that there is, uh, there's a, a failure in the genetics of the um, building blocks of the aortic wall in terms of the structure and the proteins of the aortic wall that make it more lax or allow it to dilate over time. The, the worry here in, is that, um, and most people understand the concept of the aneurysm, but I, I always make sure people really get it because you know, I deal a lot of, with aneurysms and aneurysms is kind of a tricky subject because aneurysms don't always cause people symptoms. And so, you know, when you talk about intervening on aneurysms, you're really talking about a prophylactic um, intervention. And so the concept here is, is that if you have an aneurysm, basically the, the worry is that as it gets bigger or as an aneurysm grows, the wall of the aorta um, uh, gets thinner and then uh, you're at higher and higher risk of having a complication, either a rupture or a tear, okay? And the, and the sort of fundamental concept of that is, is think about blowing up a balloon. Where you first blow up a balloon, it's hard to blow up, but then as the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's easier and easier and easier to blow up. And it's the same with aneurysms, meaning that as they get bigger, it's easier and easier and easier for them to, get, to, to blow up or, or to get bigger. So the question becomes with bicuspid valves, is the aorta itself prone to growing, which uh, there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that. And there's actually some um, truly uh, genetic aerotopathies, such as, uh, as you mentioned, Marfan's uh, thora familial thoracic aneurysm syndrome with certain genotypes or certain known genes, and then also particular allodanulos with certain genes that have a higher association with bicuspid valves. Not particularly, I should, I should correct myself there saying that Marfan's is actually not one of its more Ehlers-Danlos and, and uh, familial thoracic aneurysm, uh, aneurysm syndrome. But those have known genetic mutations to cause the fundamental failures in sort of how the, how the wall of an aorta is built. That's one sort of known reason for aortopathy in people with, with bicuspid valves. The flip side of that is, is that there's actually known turbulence with flow through the aortic valve, meaning that when it comes down to the shear physics of it, is it simply the shear forces of an aortic valve that is a bicuspid, are they so fundamentally different that over the lifespan of a patient, do they have a higher risk of aortic dilation simply because of the worsening or just, just because of more turbulent flows because of the bicuspid valve? Um, and there's actually kind of evidence on both sides of those things. And, and, and like most things, in medicine that's complex, it's probably a little bit of both, meaning neither answer is completely sufficient. Um, I will say there's actually some really nice um, sort of a, um, 4D MRI imaging of how the, how the valve forces are very different with um, bicuspid valves uh, versus a tricuspid valve. 
And the question is, is over time, does that really change what the aorta sees or, or sort of uh, the stresses that the aorta goes through? And again, uh, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I mean, we could spend, you could spend uh, two to three days just trying to unpack this subject right here, which is, is aortopathy inherent to bicuspid valve or does a bicuspid valve cause aortopathy? <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I would be, uh, you know, I'd be a more famous man than I am. <laughs> You're already famous. You know. <laughs> well, listen, Carl, I mean, uh, how do we make a diagnosis of this? I mean, we, you sure. know, a lot of times we'll have, you know, a patient refer to us for heart murmur. Um, you know, what do you do in your office to um, uh, find out what's wrong with this patient? Well, as, a, as any good cardiac surgeon knows, I lean heavily on my cardiology colleagues. So, uh, you know, I, I, a box of chocolate. That's right. <laughs> right. I, uh, I wait, I wait for the phone call from, from somebody like yourself, Dr. Bouchard. No, no, but they're, you know, they're, I think you mentioned it or you're getting towards it, meaning that these people often have a kind of what they're told is a lifelong murmur, right? They, they're told, Oh, I have a, I have a murmur. I've had a murmur since childhood. And outside of that, they really have no symptoms. Um, and, and I think that's interesting because you can have a completely well-functioning bicuspid valve that actually have a soft bicuspid valve murmur, um, you know, which is, which is um, faint, but, but there's a fundamental difference that you can often hear an, an opening click with, with a bicuspid valve over, say, um, tricuspid valve. Um, and, and that typically is your first hint that it's, um, um, a, a, a bicuspid valve, but like, uh, many things nowadays, we often then go to order some tests to back up our physical findings and, and really, um, transthoracic, uh, echocardiography is, is our gold standard these days. Um, you know, this is an ultrasound test where we look at the heart uh, through ultrasound. It's non-invasive. You know, it's easy to do. Um, and more often than not, and most people were actually able to make a really good diagnosis with the start of a TTE, our transthoracic echo that we call it. Um, there are some people where it's hard to make that distinction. Where and you kind of talked about this earlier. Sometimes we think it's tricuspid. Sometimes we think it's bicuspid. But if you look at all comers and some studies, I mean, it's it's pretty decent sensitivity and specificity, probably somewhere in the order of 80 to 90% um, for, for TEs off the bat. The other nice thing with a TTE is you're able to make a, a, a sort of quick and dirty assessment of the aortic root and the ascending aorta. Um, it's not the gold standard of the measurement that you're going to go by that we would consider thresholds for intervention. But it'll tell you, hey, you have a dilated aortic root or you have a dilated ascending aorta. And do I have to take the next steps um, in terms of imaging? Certainly, it has a good um, sensitivity and specificity. We're in the high 90%. It can be quite difficult sometimes, particularly later on in life when you have a lot of calcium and mm -hmm. you have those rashes that makes it look like a, you know, a tricuspid or mm -hmm. it's and it's actually kind of functioning more like a bicuspid. And, and, and also with the ultrasound, you know, the aorta is right behind that sternum. So we feel like there's, a, there, there's an area that is a little, uh, that you know, could be hiding, you know, some sure. enlargement of that aorta. And I guess that's why you refer to, when you want to look at the aorta, you, you always get a cardiac CT now, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if, if you have any concern for 
um, aortic pathology, my first go-to is a, um, a cardiac-gated CTA, and that's a um, that's a heartbeat-timed scan. Um, the benefit of that is you take each slice with the same uh, portion of the cardiac cycle, um, and so you know you're getting the same the same portion of systole and, and diastole. The reason to do that is that there, can, there can actually be a five to ten percent um, difference throughout the cardiac cycle for the um, aortic root. I mean, it, and this kind of gets back to what we were talking about is the aortic valve and the aortic root structure are really all in one together. And as you can imagine, this is the first thing that comes out of the heart and there's a lot of dynamic motion from the heart. And so the nice thing about a cardiac CT is it gets you a very well-defined um, uh, measurement of the aortic root and the ascending aorta. And, and the other benefit is, and, and this is something I see all the time, is that the key in evaluating these um, scans are that when we talk about measurements of the aorta, we're talking about a coplanar measurement, meaning that you have to make sure that the, the line in which you're drawing your measurement through is perpendicular to the center line of the aorta. Um, and so, you know, if, if you are catching the aorta in an oblique fashion on off axis, you can fool yourself that it's much larger than it is. Um, and so, it, you know, I, I, I often will see somebody who has a bicuspid valve. They've been told they have an aneurysm at six centimeters. They need to be operating on immediately. You know, you, you get a cardiac gated CT. You take your time. You measure everything based on the coplanar angle from the center line. And you find out, you know, their aorta is only four and a half centimeters. And, th and th there's a big difference between four and a half and six centimeters in terms of whether or not you need to intervene. I will say that I've, I'm starting to come around myself on cardiac MRI. Um, I probably should use it a little bit more than I do, but part of it is um, cardiac MRI can be a little hard to schedule in some places, and it's a little expensive in some places, but cardiac MRI is a wonderful imaging modality. Uh, not only can you get really good images of the aortic root, but you can get very um, objective, um, sensitive measurements uh, um, of aortic regurgitation in terms of regurgitant volume and regurgitant fraction. Um, which I think is very helpful for, for AI patients. So no radiation and no radiation. Yeah. Right. Although I will say, you know, CTs nowadays are, are very small amount in very small amount compared to historically. So, um, and, and I guess it's nice for MRI. If you have no radiation, you can easily repeat the study, you know, every six months or, or a year without, you know, being concerned, you know, for patient safety. Right. And, and that's the other thing is, uh, especially, you know, we see a lot of people for long-term follow-up of aortopathy. And so for particularly young patients, people with genetic diseases, we uh, will classically kind of sometimes switch back and forth between CT and MRI just so that they're not getting CTs all the time. The CT, um, does it actually help you define the, the valve itself, the anatomy, as well as the calcium? Yes. So I would say that CT... Um, I think it's a, an amazing uh, diagnostic tool for assessment of the valve, meaning that you will be able to tell exactly how many leaflets, uh, where the calcium lies, uh, the burden of calcium, um, all of that, which is really kind of health, you know, helpful, um, particularly if you're on the fence between trileaflet and, and bicuspid, which is important because there's actually a, there's a bicuspid versus trileaflet changes sometimes how we think about aneurysm management, even if the bicuspid valve is not malfunctioning, meaning you can have a, a, a normal bicuspid valve, um, but it changes our thoughts in terms of 
when to intervene on some other other aortic thresholds. Right. I guess also we forgot to mention that that echocardiogram very important in screening the relatives. You know, the first degree relatives. Yes. So that is that is um, far and away by all the societies the the best screening tool um, used for uh, screening of first relatives, and also it goes the same actually for genetic diseases, uh, particularly in young patients. Um, just because non-invasive, easy to use, a, a good first check, and so um, it doesn't really, uh, you know, there's no there's no issues, no contrast. It's really kind of a, a very easy thing that, um, as you know gets you a lot of information. Great. Well, let's go ahead and let's talk about the clinical course. I and mean, we've been sure. talking about this bimodal presentation. Some people develop, you know, aortic stenosis or narrowing, some they're leaking. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, and uh, and uh, does the presentation vary according to the age of the patient? Right, and so, um, yes. So we, we talked about this a little earlier, you know, at the end of the day, it's important to understand that if you have a bicuspid valve, you may live a completely normal, long, happy life and never have valve disease. I mean, I think that's kind of an important takeaway. Now, that being said, if you have a bicuspid valve, you should be serially followed, and that is because you have a higher incidence of complications. Um, and when we say complications, we're really talking about um, kind of four buckets that I like to think about it. Um, there is this bimodal presentation that is the earlier presentation in say 30 year olds or four year olds where you have aortic regurgitation, okay? And then there's this later presentation in really 50 and 60 year olds where you have um, uh, aortic stenosis, okay? And that's that's the the kind of typical bimodal presentation that we talk about. You know, I, I, I've kind of I looked and tried to get some concept of numbers and, and percent chances. And, and, and the reality is it's nobody has a, perfect grasp on this. Um, if you look at it, the, the vast majority of people um, fall into, or, you know, I'd probably say 40 to 50% of people fall into this aortic stenosis bucket and the aortic regurgitation is, is less. So that 30, 40 year olds with aortic regurgitation is a much smaller subset of the bicuspid valve disease population. Whereas most people um, fall into this aortic stenosis bucket in their forties and fifties. Now that being said, a lot of bicuspid patients actually develop aortic stenosis, but they get it at normal times, meaning 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, people can have bicuspid valve disease um, and develop aortic stenosis. Um, those are the, the two main, you know, again, when we talk about this bimodal presentation, that's what we're talking about, the, this aortic regurgitation versus aortic stenosis. But there's two other areas where people end up, you know, getting an intervention. And one is um, uh, this aortopathy, where we talk about people who have, you know, aneurysmal disease that's associated with it. Um, sometimes that exists with valvular dysfunction. Sometimes it exists without valvular dysfunction. I think that's kind of important to understand. And then the last, and it's it's definitely a smaller subset of people, but it's important to, to know, is that people who have bicuspid valve disease have a higher risk of infective endocarditis. Um, and so um, that is when your valve gets um, uh, gets an actual infection on it that is destructive to the valve. It has to do with the fact that there's turbulence over the valve that's different than when you have a trilucid valve. And so um, it, there's nothing to do or nothing to change about how you live your life that's going to avoid endocarditis, but you should know that if you have a bicuspid valve, your risk of that is slightly higher. At present, there's not any difference in terms of recommendations about um, 
uh, prophylaxis around the time of dental cleanings or anything like that. But um, it's just something to kind of think about. So this bimodal course, um, you know, really, I guess we can kind of talk about it in the two subs, the two main subsets of the AI and the AS. So AI, um, the standard interventions regarding um, aortic valve disease apply. And so really for those, we really um, look to see, you know, we wait until somebody's symptomatic by aortic regurgitation. And we, we wait until that they until they receive a um, diagnosis of severe aortic regurgitation, right? And so the standard ways in which we measure that apply, which is either a jet width greater than 65% of the LVOT, a vena contracta, which is greater than uh, 0.6 centimeters, a uh, whole diastolic flow reversal in the uh, proximal abdominal aorta, or regurgitant volume greater than 60 milliliters, or regurgitant fraction greater than 50 milliliters, <clears throat> um, or an effective regurgitant orifice area uh, greater than 0.3 centimeters, or by angiography uh, greater than three to four plus um, regurgitation. So those are all diagnostic criteria that are mostly based off of echo, some are based off our MRI, but at the end of the day, you know, everything still falls under the same indications for surgery in terms of whether or not when, when to intervene. And usually the other thing we consider, this is for people who are symptomatic, but it, it doesn't really change in terms of when, when we intervene for the, for the aortic valve um, in terms of the criteria. It's just the presentation happens to usually be younger in life. So in that these patients with bicuspid valve presenting with a leaky valve or that aortic insufficiency or incompetence of the valve, it's mostly that the leaflet kind of prolapsed is not quite, you know, co-opting you know, or closing, you know, well. But I guess it could be also from other complications of having this, this turbulent, uh, you know, flow. And it could have been that it's regurgitating now because of it was infected or by antibiotics <coughs> right. or... Or maybe that the aorta kind of stretched and caused, you know, the um, annulus to kind of get a little bit larger. And now the valve is not closing anymore. Uh, right. So um, you're you're exactly right there. And, and that gets into treatment, meaning that um, the mode of failure will dictate the options for treatment. Um, in younger patients with uh, aortic regurgitation and bicuspid valves, more often than not, uh, excluding obviously the infected patients or the, the valves that are infected, there is an option for valve repair, um, which is a really important thing to understand because when you're younger, obviously a prosthetic valve is a disease in and of itself, meaning that if you give somebody a prosthetic valve, it does not last forever. Uh, and interestingly enough, and we know this from, from the the you know, the, the extensive literature on aortic valve repair, but the younger you are, the shorter your prosthetic valve lasts if it's a tissue valve. So um, if you're in your 30s and 40s and you're receiving a tissue valve, the likelihood is that's going to fail you in, you know, anywhere from seven, seven to eight years is really kind of the average number, which is really not a long time. Um, and so typically, classically, you know, somebody's in their 30s and 40s, we push them very hard towards mechanical valves. Mechanical valves, extremely durable, you know, they can last easily 20, 30, 40 years. The really downside to that is you have to take anticoagulation for the rest of your life. So 
there's a, you know, there's, there's a lifestyle limitations. There are things that it's hard to do in terms of medical compliance. Um, there are risks of bleeding, there are risks of thromboembolic disease and mechanical valves. They're not, that's not a perfect solution either. And so for these younger patients, it's really nice if you can offer them some sort of valve repair option where they can keep their native valve. It will outlast the tissue valve um, and, and it will um, give them uh, a functioning valve that will be durable um, in the long run. And actually, this is really a concept that <clears throat> kind of first got started really in the, in the last 15 to 20 years, this idea of valve repair for AI, especially for bicuspid valves. And so <clears throat> there's very good data to suggest, given the techniques we now know with aortic valve repair, that these, um, these repairs can last um, you know, pretty, pretty well, about 90% in a 10-year period. So they're not perfect. They need to be done well. Um, but they are a great option, particularly for patients who really are averse to the idea of Coumadin. And so in terms of how you do it, it just completely depends on the mode of failure. And so like you said, if you have a leaflet that's longer or larger, and sometimes we see that with um, on the uh, leaflet with a refe, you can actually excise part of the valve and tighten the valve and basically shorten the, what we call the free margin length of the aortic valve. And with shortening that free margin, you can actually get better coaptation and actually give them a functioning valve, which is, it's, it's quite amazing when you see it. Um, the other uh, methodology of failure can be either aneurysmal degeneration of the root. And as you said, if the root dilates, then all of a sudden now you have a valve that's kind of pulled apart and, and leaky because the root has dilated. Um, you can actually do a, what we call valve sparing root to where you treat the aortic root pathology tighten up the root, but leave the valve in place. Because as we mentioned, some of these people live normal lives with bicuspid valves. So the, if the valve itself is not malfunctioning and it's really a primary aortic problem, you can treat the, the aortic root um, and get them a nice durable result with, with, uh, without long-term failure. And so these people have a lot of options and, and these are people that need to be seen by places where valve repair is possible. That's probably the most important thing I would say to take away from this because uh, it's it's not a practice that's done everywhere. Um, and a lot of people will just throw the valve out and, and it's you know akin to throwing the baby out with the bathwater, meaning that as long as there's not significant calcification burden with the valve, the valve can be saved and spared and, and you can repair it for these people. Good. Well, so... Just to sum it up a little bit, survival <laughs> is excellent. If you have a bicuspid aortic valve, is actually no difference compared to general population. If you look at studies, um, mm -hmm. like I'm Canadian, so the one in Toronto, I'm going to be you know favoring that one. But you look at 10-year survival, is 96% if you have no symptoms. Yeah. 20-year uh, survival is in the is greater than 90%. Yeah. So it's obviously obviously very good. Now, obviously, there can be that leaky valve or, or that uh, valve that is insufficient happens less than the narrowing, maybe 10 to 20% of the time you have that leaky valve and you can fix it, you know, right. repair it and try to preserve the valve. Now, so what about now the narrowing or, or the aortic stenosis, the, what we see most frequently in the ad, adulthood? Right. Uh, I see as a, an adult cardiologist, and what is the most common manifestation of bicuspid aortic valve? Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So bicuspid valve uh, that with aortic stenosis is, is much more common. Um, and so, you know, this is just, this is what we see uh, far more often. 
Um, and particularly on the surgical side, this is, um, you know, we'll get into this, but this is becoming one of the only uh, aortic valves we excise anymore are these bicuspid um, aortic valves for aortic stenosis. If you look at population studies, um, these people develop, as we said, aortic stenosis much earlier than, say, people with tricuspid valves. Um, actually, probably one of the most interesting facts I came across when I was just trying to buff up for this year for you was that in a in a um, in a long population study of valve replacements in a thousand adults of the patients who were under fifty, two thirds of them had bicuspid aortic valve. Patients between 50 and 70, 40% had, had bicuspid aortic valves. Patients who were uh, in their 70s and in eight, between 70s and 80s, 53% had uh, bicuspid valves. And then in uh, the 80-year-olds, about 17% had bicuspid valves. So the interesting fact is that bicuspid valves exist throughout, but there is a difference in this you know, late septuagenarian, octogenarian, nonagenarian um, aortic stenosis disease versus this, you know, 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70-year-old, young, healthy 70-year-old aortic disease. And, and um, it, the reason I mention this is because the whole discussion about treatment is going to dovetail with this concept of TAVR, right? And, and for the, you know, for everybody, when I say TAVR, it's um, uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And this is really um, you know, probably is, is one of the uh, most amazing things that's happened to cardiology and cardiac surgery in, in the last 20, 40 years, um, but it has changed the treatment of aortic stenosis. Now, this is a um, platform where instead of having open heart surgery, you put a valve in through the leg and you have uh, either a balloon expandable or a self-expanding valve to treat this aortic stenosis. And the, uh, like anything, it started with the high-risk patients and now has moved to approval on the low-risk patients, which is really the, the interesting aspect. I mean, this is all within the last, you know, year and a half. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, there, is no, there is no specification regarding whether or not uh, bicuspid valve patients are um, included in that, meaning that it's just approved for low-risk patients. It, it's approved for low-risk um, surgical patients. And so the question really becomes is, uh, how do we treat these very young patients with uh, aortic stenosis who are bicuspid? And the reason there's even a question is because in all the studies, uh, particularly the low-risk studies, bicuspid valve patients were excluded. And they were not included. And part of, part of the reason they weren't included is because, uh, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, is the calcium burden in people with bicuspid valve is just is so much more significant than people with tricuspid valve stenosis. And, and so because of this, the, these people were excluded from the trials initially. They had some worries about how the valves were going to be deployed in people with heavy calcium burden. And so um, uh, they, were not, they were not included. And, and the question now looms, now that um, TAVR's approved for low-risk patients, uh, if people really want to get a TAVR, they can get a TAVR, but there are some outstanding questions about whether or not um, that's the best treatment for people with, who are young with bicuspid valve disease. That's sort of where we stand. I guess the question is, is where what what research do we have to lean on at this point? And I think there's a lot to go off of. I don't know. Should we go into that or do you want to? 
Well, you know, I think th this is this is important. You know, I mean, first of all, the trials that have that have studied TAVR have excluded patients with bicuspid aortic valve, and um, and that's why I think we we really need to be careful about disseminating this kind of you know uh, mode of treatment to a group of patients that has been excluded because we don't have prospective data now. You know, there, and, and I guess the reason for that is is because it, it can be there can be some complication if you have a lot of calcification, and the valve is uneven. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's easy to see how, for example, when you deploy that that Taver valve, that it, it could be kind of uneven. Uh, the, the shape could be oval and not quite, you know, um, kind of circular. With a lot of calcium, you can have some areas that where the valve doesn't oppose to the wall very well, and you can have situation of leakage. You can have a situation where you can block off completely the coronary arteries. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. if you have this very, very long, you know, kind of cusp, uh, mm -hmm. the valve is divided, and it, obviously you can really have some severe complication and end up actually in surgery. But we have registries, right? I mean, so we have registries where where people have studied, you know, kind of uh, valves, uh, TAVR valves and patients with aortic stenosis, retrospective analysis. I think that's what we have to be careful what what we mention. Uh, and usually compose a small component of patient have bicuspid aortic valve. We're talking about three to 4%. So, you know, we're talking about thousands of patients that have been treated with TAVR, yet a few numbers, maybe, you know, a thousand, have been treated with TAVR, and we can kind of maybe see how they how they did. And, and you have some of these results, um, Kyle. I mean, you do a lot of TAVR. Uh, what are the complications? What kind of results do you see with with these valves, these TAVR sure. valves? Sure. I mean, I, I can tell you this, just sort of. Um, well, well, I can. We can do both. I can tell you the the data that guides us, and I can tell you how we run our heart team here at UAB. And I can tell you sort of our stance as a group on 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 bicuspid valves at this time. You know, typically, um, like you said, in terms of data that guides us, we do have some registry data. Um, there's a very good uh, publication that was in uh, circulation uh, uh, earlier this year, looking specifically at the TVT registry. You know, what they did look at was the people who were bicuspids who were treated with TAVR who and then compared them to the to the tricuspid patients really the only big thing that they found was there was a um uh, a slightly higher incidence of uh moderate aortic regurgitation um and uh, compared to the tricuspid valve patients but no major difference in in uh, one year risk or stroke the other sort of you know decent data that we have is is came out of actually the low-risk Evolute study where there was an additional bicuspid arm of that study, which was actually just recently published in JAMA, and that was that was from the Evolute investigators. And basically, you know, they, they kind of found that the um, incidence of mortality and disabling stroke was very low at 30 days. Um, they, you know, recorded a decent device success rate, um, you know, I think the only big knock on that would be that there was a very high um, pacemaker uh, rate in that in that study, which is about 15 percent. But outside of that, there's not uh, there's not any good uh, randomized control data against surgery. And unfortunately, the appetite for that study is 
almost nil because, as I mentioned, is the the device is approved and and nobody wants to really go down that road if 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 they don't have to because they really don't have to from a device company perspective. So the things we worry about, especially with bicuspids, and we do come across bicuspids that we do treat with TAVR if they have other high risk features, say pulmonary disease or some other peripheral vascular disease, or even if they are young. Um, and we found that uh, they do have uh, a slightly higher risk of um, pacemaker, slightly higher risk of, of, as you mentioned, paravalvular leak. And some of that comes down to this concept of calcium burden and how the valve sits and how the valve seats. You know, if somebody is a decent surgical candidate or a lower risk surgical candidate, we in our, our team group are very much on the side of um, bicuspid valve patients should get a should get a valve, a, a surgical valve, but they should get open surgery. And part of the reason is because, um, you know, especially if somebody's in their 50s or 60s, we're not sold on what that means to them long term. If they get a surgical valve, we know that they are set up for this concept of valve and valve TAVR. If you get a TAVR, are you really set up for valve and valve TAVR, TAVR and TAVR? Nobody really knows. I mean, this is the kind of unknown of these long-term data. The other thing I would say is that we also, if somebody has a bicuspid valve, we aggressively screen for any aortopathy, meaning if they have aortopathy, they also go to surgery. These people are not considered for TAVR. Um, you know, that's kind of our stance as a group now. Uh, there's a lot of gray area in there. <laughs> and I would say that the registry data skews heavily towards um, intermediate and high-risk patients, meaning that these are people that, as I mentioned, you know, there are people who are 80 years old with a bicuspid valve. In my opinion, that person should get a TAVR. It's not as if I'm signing them up for surgery tomorrow, but it's really it's the younger sort of people who are in their 50s and 60s that were more aggressive with surgical um, replacement. And part of the reason, and, that, and I think the, the thing that people really need to know, everybody, patients, cardiologists, surgeons, the reason that surgery is really so considered in these people is because the bar is really high. Their outcomes of surgery are fantastic. I mean, really, really fantastic you know, risk of mortality under 1%, risk of uh, stroke under 1%, risk of pacemaker around 2%, 3%. You know, all of this puts them in a, yes, the the length of stay, the recovery, all that is is nowhere near tavern. And I would never argue that, but once they get through the operation, they do very well. And and the idea is that they're set up for something down the road to where they can then have a tavern again. Taver for bicuspidiotic valve, you know, still reserved for pretty high-risk patient, older patient, and particularly uh, should um, you know this is already this uh, you know always discussed with the heart team approach, probably should be done in the centers where they do a lot, uh, mm-hmm. and probably be included in in a study you know, um, as the best way to kind of see whether. Taver is really a good means. Yeah, and I would say this, you know, there are some newer devices that are coming down the line that are being studied that are claiming to, um, you you know, have a a specific design that sets them up for bicuspids. And and like, I mean, I think that's a really good point that they really should be considered for study because there are some Taver valves that are are purposefully maybe designed a little bit towards the bicuspid anatomy. Let's go to surgery now because, you know, surgery is so good. And uh, particularly, we're talking about patients in their 50s, 60s, 70s. These are young patients, you know, mm-hmm. by the way. And, um, you know, we have Very uh, young. several surgical you know, procedures to offer them. 
You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger got a Ross. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. So the Ross procedure, um, you know, the Ross procedure is, it's a fascinating procedure. And I will tell you that it comes and goes in terms of um, people who are proponents and people who aren't proponents. And, and um, I think, unfortunately, the Ross procedure is losing a little favor in the, in the era of TAVR. Um, and the reason being is, um, you know, the Ross procedure was very good in the pre-TAVR era. And so I guess I guess I'll explain the Ross first. The Ross is actually a procedure for um, young patients who have um, usually bicuspid AS, um, who are you worried about long-term um, val- you know prosthetic valve disease. So what we mentioned before, people who you know they're they're a little young to put a to put a tissue valve in. They really don't want a mechanical valve for whatever reason. And then they're also not a candidate for aortic valve repair because they have um, calcific disease, meaning the valve itself is, has d- decent calcium burden and is not going to um, do well or not be amenable to repair. So what a ROS is, is a ROS is actually a pulmonary autograft where you actually remove your pulmonic valve um, and uh, part of the RVOT on block from the right side of the heart. You remove the aortic root on block. And then you place the uh, pulmonic valve into the aortic valve position, reimplant the coronaries, and then you place a prosthetic valve conduit or a homograft conduit into the uh, pulmonary position. It is a lot of surgery. It's a tour de force, I would say, um, but it is a great outcome when it works well. Um, the uh, benefit is you've given somebody a native valve in their aortic position. And again, the, the reason being is to avoid uh, long-term anticoagulation with a mechanical prosthesis. Um, the downside is that um, you're left with uh, a homograft on the pulmonic side that you're gonna have to address over time, but we actually have percutaneous valves that we can address for pulmonic dysfunction. Now, you know, it didn't work very well for Arnold. <laughs> it, did not, it did not work very well for Arnold. And, and, and a lot of people would argue that, you know, a lot of times you can see this, this abnormality of the aortic valve and, and the aorta. You can see that also in the pulmonary. Yeah. And the well, and so, but to address that, some people have argued now this, this concept of, of placing a, a Dacron sleeve around the the pulmonary autograft to prevent late dilation of the pulmonary autograft, which is what which is what um, people really worry about long term for these. Um, you know, I would tell you this: I'm just not a Ross believer. Um, it's part of how I trained. It's part of how I, you know, who I trained under. Um, but there are people who are very good at the Ross who have very good results. But it is not something that is um, readily out there. And and I and and it gets back to my point in in you know, what does it mean in this TAVR era? You know, there's so many more options for people now with this concept of valve and valve, meaning that you could give a 40-year-old a tissue valve. And actually, this is an interesting conversation because I crossed this um, with two bicuspid patients in the last three weeks. And this is kind of an interesting clinical corollary here. And with both these patients, they were both in their 40s. One was a female, one was a male. So the female... I told her you absolutely need to get a mechanical valve. And the reason being was she had a very, very tiny aortic root. Um, And you know this all the time. We worry about valve sizing and patient prosthesis mismatch and what type of valve we're going to get. And and people all the time think, do I decide between a mechanical or a tissue? And I think a third thing that you need to consider is what size valve are you going to get? 
And I think a lot of surgeons don't talk about that with their patients, meaning that if you're set up for a small valve, you should not get a tissue valve. If you're set up for a small valve, you should get a mechanical valve. The flow dynamics are better. It's going to last you longer. It's the way to go. And so for this, this woman, I said, you've got to get a mechanical valve. I then had a guy who was in his 40s, and I could tell he was going to get a big valve. And I told him, listen, you're you know, late 40s. If I can get a big valve in there, and if I was in your position, I would take a tissue valve because he has a 27-millimeter valve, which is huge for a surgical valve. You know, the reality is that he could get valve and valve and valve and valve twice down the road, and it should be able to last him, you know, conceptually 35 years in terms of just a couple procedures, you know, to add on. So I think that's a really interesting concept to, to, to be thinking about with people, especially by custom patients, um, because, you, again, you're trying to plan for them. 30 to 50 years of life with a valve. And that's why the Ross came about is because some people said, hey, listen, this is going to last you forever. Does it? Not always. Again, you know, uh, it just, it's just where I fall on the, uh, on the, on the Ross debate, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of against it in general. Now, this um, valve surgery, um, if you just have to, you know, replace the valve, um, tell us a little bit. Let's say I'm a patient, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s. Of course, I'm lying. Uh, <laughs> let's say, okay, well, I'm in my 60s. I'm coming tomorrow. You're going to do um, aortic valve uh, surgery on me. You're going to replace my valve, and you decide that uh, you're going to put a big, you know, porcine valve. Uh, mm-hmm. I get to the hospital. What does it mean for me? Uh, what kind of incision am I going to have? Are sure. you going to cut me open right in the middle if I don't need sure. a bypass? Or? Well, you know, so... I will say this, you know, now the, nowadays uh, we're mostly bovine valves, um, but the data for them are a little better. I'm a, I'm a promoter of bovine valves, um, but uh, unless there's some religious beliefs, you can't take a bovine valve. But, um, you know, it depends a little on what we have to address. If we just have to address the valve, the vast majority of patients we can address with a, um, a minimally invasive approach. Um, for the aortic valve, what that means is it's a, um, a small right anterior um, thoracotomy approach. So it's just in the second rib space, just off your sternum. We don't have to go through the sternum. It's usually an incision that's somewhere between five to seven centimeters long. We only have to basically kind of move one rib head. We don't break any bones. And the procedure itself takes the same amount of time. Typically, you're in the operating room for for anywhere from three to five hours, again, depending upon exactly what we have to do. That's all in, not just the operation itself. You spend about a night in the ICU, and then typically most patients are out of the hospital somewhere between four to seven days, just depending upon how their post-op course goes. Uh, they have to take it easy for a couple of weeks, but usually by four weeks, especially people with aortic stenosis, usually by about three weeks, they're really starting to feel better and they can notice the difference. Some people even notice it before they leave the hospital. And then most of the time we have people kind of back to doing everything they were doing before somewhere on the order around six weeks. Obviously with the mini incision is a little bit earlier. Now, if we have to address some sort of aneurysm or aortic root pathology, Sometimes we can do that through a mini sternotomy. We do have to go through part of the sternum there. Um, again, that incision is about eight centimeters, but it, it depends on, on what needs to be addressed. If we have to address not just the, if we have to address the root and the ascending and we're worried about some other things, uh, those people are people that sometimes I'd push more towards a sternotomy um, just because it's the safest thing. The sternotomy is the kind of classic 
cutting of the chest open. That's about a 10 centimeter incision. Um, and uh, again, uh, the recovery is about the same. You just, the, the, usually you're about a night in the ICU. And then again, four to seven days in the hospital, depending upon sort of how your recovery goes. Uh, but again, people get through it and they actually do really well. And most people will tell you if they have heart surgery, particularly if they had bad valve disease, they feel really good um, coming out the back end. If we can avoid the big incision, we try to. We can offer most people minimally invasive options, but it just it depends a little bit on the anatomy. All right. So let's talk about the, the elephant in the room. And that's that, uh, that's that aorta and the yeah. aortic dilatation. You know, uh, I mean, obviously it's going to, you know, influence how you're going to operate on your patient, particularly if you have to, if you have the valve that is bicuspid, is it just a matter of size? Um, yeah, it's not all about size, Dr. Bouchard. <laughs> Classic line. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I will, uh, tell me if I'm rambling too much, but I will try to keep it uh, concise because, you know, you know that, uh, this is what I love to sort of get in the weeds about in terms of aortic disease. But um, the classic thresholds for intervention are we consider replacing the aorta somewhere in the order of about 5.5 centimeters. All right. And the reason for that is um, we believe that is kind of a threshold to where your risk of an aortic event, meaning either a tearing or rupturing, is very significant, probably somewhere in the order of about eight percent chance per year. That's not astronomically high, but if, in, if you have an aortic event, it, it is, it is um, uh, very, very life-threatening. So this gets back to, I think, what I mentioned earlier. You know, aortic surgery is really prophylactic surgery. And so basically what you're trying to consider is when the risk of surveillance is um, uh, higher than the risk of intervention. So, you know, at what point is an operation less risky than keeping and then just watching you. Okay. And it, and it's different for everybody because everybody has different risk factors. Um, and, uh, and everybody's risk is different. And so, you know, if somebody's in their mid eighties, I'm less, I'm, I'm much more reluctant to consider any intervention on them because of their age. Right. Whereas if somebody's in their mid fifties, I actually err on the side of being more aggressive with an intervention because their cumulative risk over their lifetime is much higher. So, that is kind of the, the backdrop to which all aortic decisions really should be made. Um, and again, then, then it gets down to the classic size criteria. So again, the, the sort of uh, the board answer is five and a half centimeters, but there's a lot that plays into that, meaning that if you have a bicuspid valve, that in and of itself is a bit of a risk factor. Okay. Uh, on top of that, if you have any additional high risk features, particularly any family history, Obviously, family history of aneurysm, family history of dissections, uh, family history of genetic aortopathy. Um, if you're if you're considered somebody who has uh, uh, uncontrolled hypertension or, or resistant hypertension, all those put you at what we consider higher risk features. Um, there's also sometimes radiographic features that we look and we say, hey, that aorta actually is a is a eccentric in terms of its dilation, not smooth and and um, uniformly dilated. Also, if you're a low risk surgical candidate. Um, sort of getting to what I was saying earlier, we consider intervention a little bit earlier, meaning that if your risk of surgery, and, and this is a, again, a, a class 2B indication, 
based on our surgical guidelines. But if you're a low-risk um, surgical candidate, we can consider intervention at five centimeters. Um, and that's if your risk of surgery is under 4%, which a lot of people are, particularly in their 50s and 60s. And so those people are people that we consider being a little bit more aggressive about. The other thing to take into account is um, uh, everybody's different sizes in terms of their heights and weights. And so I, I typically index aorta to either height or body surface area. Height's a pretty good index, but also body surface area is a pretty good in index as well. Meaning that if you have a five and a half centimeter aneurysm and you're five feet tall, that's a huge aneurysm. If you have a five and a half centimeter aneurysm and you're seven feet tall, that's not that big of an aneurysm. So, you know, that is technically not in the guidelines, but there's a lot of good data to suggest that you should be indexing to height and height or body surface area. And so, again, the, you know, uh, there's a lot of things in play. Um, to get even a little more nuanced, where the aneurysm is, um, is, is, changes your risk, meaning if it's in the ascending aorta, it's a little less risky than in the aortic root. Dilation at the aortic root is considered a little bit higher risk for a dissection or a tear. Um, and for that reason, um, dilation of five centimeters at the aortic root, again, we consider intervening a little bit sooner or being a little more aggressive. The other thing is if you have an indication for surgery outside of the aneurysm based either on aortic regurgitation or aortic stenosis, uh, we would consider intervening uh, at an even lower size, meaning that if we're going to go in there for surgery anyways, if your aorta is greater than four and a half centimeters, we tend to replace that. The interesting question will become, particularly when we start to go down this TAVR route, is if, if you know, at, at present in our group, we don't, if somebody has any dilation up to four and a half centimeters, we consider them for open surgery uh, over TAVR. Um, but that's based on the sort of older surgical recommendations that if they're having surgery, they get the, the aneurysm replaced. But now the question is, if you fix it with a TAVR, does that change their, their aneurysm risk over time? And nobody knows the answer to that at present. Another reason to participate in a clinical research <laughs> study, you know, to make sure you have a good, good follow-up and surveillance. I mean, and the, you know, and, and, and then it gets, again, it gets down to a lot of other things, um, even pregnancy, which we didn't talk about, but uh, females with bicuspid aortic valves have a higher incidence of aneurysmal or aortic events in third trimester of pregnancy, meaning that if you know you have a bicuspid valve, you should be screened um, at the time of your pregnancy because of the risk that you can actually have aortic dilation during pregnancy or late dilation during pregnancy. Yeah, so you become really a high-risk pregnancy, and then it seems like the pregnancy seems to trigger... Uh, some reaction to this valve, they seem to progress, you know, faster and needing more intervention after the pregnancy, don't they? Right. Or possibly the aortopathy is more pronounced in the setting of the milieu that happens during pregnancy um, or, or uh, something gets triggered to where the aortopathy is allowed to progress. Again, that's something that's a little unknown, but um, this is why no matter, no matter what you do, uh, if, you're, if you're being considered for aneurysmal intervention, know that it's a, it's a very multifactorial um, decision. And so there's no magic calculator. Um, there's, there's no magic number. Uh, and so you really should be seen at a place where people are kind of making sure that they're taking care of all this or looking, all, looking at all this in terms of uh, decision-making regarding, regarding when, and, when and how to intervene on, on an aorta, particularly if you have a bicuspid valve. 
Well, I really like your idea of indexing to the body surface area because there's not that great correlation between the size of the aorta and the tear, the dissection. There's a lot of dissection occurring with aortas that are less than five centimeters. But, you know, maybe for that person, that was a large aorta. And right. No, I mean, if you look at the IRAD database, I think it's uh, 40 or 50% of dissections occur under the size of five centimeters, which is you know, the fact that 50% of dissections are occurring under that size is really staggering uh, because that's theoretically what we're trying to prevent from happening. For those of you who don't know, if you have a dissection, uh, a dissection is a tear of the ACE in the order, particular type A dissection, but right off the bat, it's about a, a 20% mortality, even if you get to a hospital and about a 10% risk of stroke, even if you get to a hospital and even if you get operated on. And, and that's, it's a nasty disease. Right. It seems like this, the, the aorta seems to get larger with age. And I guess you, you kind of watch it carefully as you follow these patients annually, either with MRI or, or CT. Is right. there a rate of progression of this uh, dilatation of the aorta that you watch as well? Or? Yes. And so that's the other thing. Rate of growth is, is important. You know, any, any um, um, significant rate of growth uh, you know, that, that kind of triggers us to consider it a high risk uh, or, or high risk features that would warrant operating sooner rather than later. So, you know, whenever I see somebody new and, and they have an aorta that's kind of on the fence, uh, I'm pretty aggressive to get a, a repeat scan either in three months or six months just to get a good time point to say this thing's not changing, at least in the short term. Uh, for most people, you know, your aorta dilates somewhere on the, on the order of about half a millimeter to a millimeter a year if you have any aneurysm. So, um, that's the kind of standard, but keep in mind that as it grows, it can actually increase in the, its rate of growth. And that gets back to the original sort of balloon analogy, meaning that it gets, it just, it is allowed to expand a little bit more and more. Right. That's a lot going on with bicuspid aortic valve. We, we didn't <laughs> talk too much about exercise also. Let's say you have, you have a, you're a patient, you have this bicuspid aortic valve, you have some aortic stenosis, not so yeah. much. Can you exercise? Or? Yeah, I mean, I listen. This is this is the hands down the biggest question or the the most frequent question I get in in my clinics. Um, and you know, I have I have trouble telling anybody to 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 reserve their exercise. And so, I'll 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 put a caveat with that. I mean, you know, the reality is is most people I tell them. Um, they're really free to do almost anything they want. I really encourage people to get the heart rate up, you know, any aerobic exercise, walking, jogging, cycling, um, uh, all of that is, is really um, great. In fact, if I could get all my patients to do that, I mean, I'd probably be out of business, right? Maybe not completely, but uh, you and I would have less business. But, uh, but the one thing to really avoid, and, and probably the only thing to be mindful of, is you should avoid um extreme strain. And so, you know, we classically call this Valsalva maneuvers, but anything to where you're kind of bearing down, grunting, really pushing, heavy, heavy lifting. Um, you those know, are the, Arnold uh, was lifting weights. Exactly. Oh, Arnold was lifting weights. <laughs> that might've been Arnold's problem. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold probably also had a history of maybe some, uh, some steroid use in there that might not have helped him. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that is, that's probably the, the, the biggest thing to avoid, but anything to where you're, you know, you're getting up to 70 to 80% of your max heart rate, all of that is not bad at all. You know, I mean, I think 
severe strain is really something to avoid. But in a lot of our patients who are in their 50s, 60s, things like that, um, you know, I tell them that's the stuff you want to avoid anyways. So, um, you know, the, most of the time, uh, you know, people are really free to do what they like. Um, I will tell you this, though, and this is something that's changed in my practice just in the last couple of years, but as of 2018, um, there is now a, a black box warning on uh, fluoroquinolone antibiotics, so that's specifically Levaquin and Cipro um, for people with known ascending aneurysms. And, and the, these fluoroquinolone antibiotics have some effect in, in terms of um, accelerating uh, the, the breakdown of the wall of the aorta. Um, and people who are on these antibiotics long-term can have higher rates of aortic events. And so, you know, I always tell people, if you're dying from an infection, these are the only antibiotics you can take, take them, but just be mindful of somebody who's a doc in the box, just trying to give you something for a cough or, you know, a, a, a UTI that probably doesn't need to be treated, you know, make sure to stay away from these types of, these types of antibiotics, because they can have complications if you take long, longer term doses of them. Yeah, certainly um, also for patients that have dilated aortas. Uh, I mean, we do recommend, of course, you know, trying to lower and control the blood pressure. Blood pressure uh, control, very important. The exercise, I mean, it's so important because it helps you, particularly aerobic type of exercise. Yeah. That when you do a lot of isometric, you know, type weightlifting, I mean, they've measured blood pressure going as high as three to 400 millimeters of mercury. You can yeah. see you know, how much stress you, put, you could put on the walls of that aorta. So if you do lift weights, it's lightweight repetition. Right, exactly. Having some good breathing techniques, not to raise the blood pressure, but the point is to lower it. Right. And, and uh, so important. And lest us not forget smoking cessation, always. Uh, always. Losing weight, right? And you can help that with exercise. Any any research going on in the field, Kyle? Um, what's happening in bicuspid? Sure, you know, uh, you know, there's we again we kind of talked about this at the beginning, but there is a lot to unpack in terms of the genetics. Um, th that is still a bit of a black box for us. We, you know, we we have a, a bit of an idea, but but we still don't we still don't understand how it's going to how what's guiding us where in terms of. Um, it'd be nice to have a little bit more tailored um, intervention or thresholds for intervention based on genetics. We're getting there with some of this, but not only the genetics of bicuspid valves, but the genetics of aortopathy. Um, I think that's probably the, the most exciting area down the road. Um, you know, valve repair, which we talked about, is really actually kind of a novel thing in the last five to 10 years. I think the long-term data for that is still, still going to be coming out, which is really good. Um, and, you know, outside of that, the other question is, you know, we talked about TAVR, um, and then also, you know, what what's available for endovascular treatment of aneurysms down the road, which I think is probably the, the other kind of big area uh, of what can we do without open surgery is always the question. Again, uh, keeping in mind that the bar for surgery is very high, and that's a good thing, um, but, you know, we want to keep being able to push uh you know, push the field forward and be able to treat more people, particularly those people who are higher risk. And again, it gets back to that 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 sort of understanding that you're you're balancing the risk of surveillance versus the risk of intervention. Meaning, if you can drive down the risk of intervention, then your your sort of uh, threshold to intervene changes. And that's I think kind of the exciting area that we are, are thinking about or we're really trying to 
trying to change. Kyle, uh, thank you so much. What, a, what an incredible, comprehensive um, <laughs> review on the bicuspid aortic valve. And I can see, I mean, I've always known you've had this, this very strong interest in the aorta ever since, you know, you're training in New York and you carry that forward uh, so elegantly. And I could see why it would lead you, you know, to take care of patients with bicuspid, you know, aortic valve disease. Uh, listen, it was a true pleasure, Dr. Bouchard. I mean, listen, I wish I could just uh, just get the opportunity to hang out with you more often. Uh, I, I mean, what do we get to talk about next? Let's not, <laughs> let's not do something heart-related. Let's do something else. <laughs> uh, you daily at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate your help. My, my pleasure. My pleasure, Dr. Bouchard. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.